This is our last Sunday night in Proverbs. 16 weeks. We've studied subject studies in the book of Proverbs. Tonight is different because there's only one text that I'm looking at. And it's the way I kind of wanted to wrap up this series. Proverbs 1, verse 23. And this is the verse. We may refer to others, but this is the verse we're studying tonight. One verse of Scripture. Do you have that in your notes, that verse printed out? Would you read it with me all together in a nice loud, don't mumble it. Let's proclaim it as we read it, okay? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. What could be more important? I will pour out my spirit to you. Two things. If we do something... God will do two things. I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. We'll look at both of those things. Now, I know Sunday night here, we have all sorts of people here from Presbyterian churches and Anglican churches and and Lutheran churches and Baptist churches. There's people that come here Sunday night, and if you talk to them, they'll tell you. I, I get it all the time. This is our Sunday night church. We're not a part of your morning service. We don't belong to your denomination, but our church doesn't have a service at night, so we come here every Sunday night, so we consider Cedarview our Sunday night church, and that's great. Welcome. And I know that people from all sorts of different church backgrounds and denominational backgrounds, raised in different ways, will have different interpretations, probably, about what it means to have God pour out His Spirit on you. What we would surely all agree on is it's a good thing. When God pours out His Spirit on us. Will we not all agree on that? It truly is something desirable. This is what gives life to all religion. We know the story of Ezekiel and his vision of the dry bones. And the Spirit comes upon them. And life comes into them. Only the Holy Spirit can give life to dry bones, dry people, and dry religion. Who wouldn't want God to pour out his spirit? People have different views about how the spirit of God comes or what initiates or prompts the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on our lives. Books on revival, books on renewal. A person could be excused probably for believing that all you have to do is pray. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. We can all sympathize with the idea that revival, renewal, whatever term you want to use, is simply a matter of calling on God fervently enough, long enough. And there are sure a lot of verses in the Bible highlighting the great importance of calling out to God, seeking His face. No argument from me. But the strange thing about this text from Proverbs is that our text text doesn't link the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to our speaking to God. It links the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to our listening to God speak to us. If you turn at my reproof, the reproof comes from God. Their turning is our listening, our response to what he says. 
Not just our crying out to him for what we would like. It's listening. In this current age, we're very prone to link the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with just the right kind of worship. And again, no argument for me about the importance of worship. We want to know all the best songs and all the latest songs. We pursue more expressive, exuberant worship. A lot of churches are less tied to forms and traditions. Some people think that is more spiritual. Others don't. I'm sure the writer of Proverbs understands all these things, understood all these things, and would have no argument with any of them. But, but he does caution us about overlooking something right under our noses. He, he's telling us there's a, a, a pathway to the outpouring of the Spirit of God in our lives that is, that is within our reach. Even more than that, he's saying that nothing else we do to kind of uh, kindle up a fervency of the Spirit in our hearts. Nothing else will work if this divine pathway to the outpouring of the Spirit is ignored. Without this truth, one of the wisest people who ever lived, without this truth, everything else is going to come up empty eventually and frustrating spiritually. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. God will do the work. I will pour out my spirit. I will make my words known. He knows what he's doing. We can count on it. He will do it. And so he says, if you turn at my reproof, Behold. Just, just look at that for a minute. Behold. So he means we're to, we don't use that word very much anymore. Behold. It's all through the Bible. But we don't use it much in speech. We, we would say, uh, look at this. Consider this. Think about this. Hey. We're to look at this truth. We're being called to reconsider something that we could easily miss. We should be almost startled at how big the promise is that's attached to this one action on our part. He's saying you can look at this. You can see this. You can observe it. You can test it. If you do this, you will see these two results in your soul. Point number one. This verse answers to the fear that you will never be able to realize the blessing of God in your life or overcome some stubborn, habitual, deeply rooted sin. I want to start with the promise that follows the command and then back up. So first, I will will pour out my spirit on you. And, and that's important because it answers our deepest fear whenever we begin to, you know, we have these moments where we, we, we are like that deer panting for the water. We, we, we ache in our souls for something of God that we're not experiencing, of his grace and power. 
We know these things work for other Christians. We hear testimonies. We see it in their lives. We have people in the church. We admire them. It seems that God is doing things in their heart. What we aren't so sure of, though, is, is this, will this work for me? Will this work for me? Goodness knows. You know, we've experienced enough failure in the past. We've had great dreams of what we wanted our hearts to look like. Great dreams of revival, reformation, renewal that, that uh, seemed to dry up as soon as the last camp meeting ended or the last book that we read slipped out of our memory. Intentions grew cold. The last video we saw, the last conference we attended, the last time we were at the altar. And, and the thing about it is, each of those experiences leaves scar tissue on the soul. We're, we're just that much more doubtful the next time we sense the waters stirring that if we jump in, there's going to be anything great happening in our hearts. There are reasons for those failures. If, if renewal doesn't start right, it can't end right. And, and one of the complicated lessons is that it is not enough just to be moved in some um, emotionally charged religious setting. Now, you won't get argument from me that the emotions are to be engaged you, you were designed with them. God created them. There's nothing intrinsically spiritual about a person saying, I just, you know what, I just read the Bible, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. That there's, there's meant to be something fervent, joyful, warm, expressive. God made you that way. The highest emotional response that can be summoned from your being is emotional response directed toward your creator who made those emotions in the first place. Worship should be an emotional experience. That's not charismatic lingo. That, that's just biblical theology. It ought to be. It was for David. It was for Paul. But it isn't enough just to be moved in some emotionally charged setting. It's, it's, a, it's a very tricky thing to sustain a response in your soul that was stimulated in an emotional setting only because those emotions change. They shift. And won't be long before you're going to start to feel guilty when they do. You're going to think that God has somehow let you down because you don't feel I think back to some of the songs we sang when I was a kid, and uh, some of them were great, and I miss. Others I look back. Rini and I were talking about this. We were in the kitchen, and we were talking about this, and, and we both just started laughing at some of the goofy songs that I can remember singing. Now, you'd have to be growing up in a Pentecostal home, and you'd have to be willing to admit it. I can remember singing, don't laugh, I can remember, I don't mean in Sunday school, I mean in church services. I can remember singing, it's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in my soul. Does anybody remember that? Do you remember you can have the joy bells ringing in your heart? What on earth was that all about? 
Solomon has wisdom in this verse that is way beyond the general tone of the Old Testament era. He's, he's thinking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people. Think about that. Old Covenant. And he says the starting point for any true experience of the outpouring of God's Spirit can't be rooted in something that is, first of all, just emotional. He says God directs his speaking to us on issues of our holiness. That shouldn't surprise us. After all, he's called the Holy Spirit, not the emotional spirit. And so Solomon's promise, there it is, yes, God will give. Lavishly, apparently, pour out is the word. God will give his Holy Spirit. But he doesn't do it just under any conditions whatsoever. The Holy Spirit can't be worked up at our bidding, but God will give him in great measure when people encounter one very special, specific situation. And that's what I want to talk about under point number two. In a surprising turn, he says, times of spiritual outpouring follow hot on the heels of times of reproof. If, you don't have to, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. It's easy to badly misjudge times of divine reproof. It's easy only to feel the, the pain of reproof, the momentary sting of reproof, the feeling of shame that can come from reproof. It's easy just to experience that part of it without realizing God's full intention. It's easy to brush off the word reproof. It's easy to think of the word reproof as just one of those harsh negative words that Christianity just needs to sort of evolve out of. Turn at my reproof. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? Turn at my reproof. It's it's almost like Solomon is saying we don't have to treat divine reproof with this turning. You don't have to turn. Divine reproof is easily avoided. It's easily dodged. You can turn away from reproof in a heartbeat. You can think of other things. You can justify. You can say other people don't seem to be turning away from this. It's pretty common. I'm as good as anybody else. Maybe this, you know what, maybe this is just me. I don't doubt that it's easy for us to become masters at turning away from Reproof. We don't necessarily deny it or argue with it, but, but we don't embrace it. We don't see the, the good in it. We don't see the promise attached to it. And so we don't turn to the issue of reproof. We don't give these issues the attention God wants us to give. Point number three. A proper response to reproof sets our attention on things 
God has already given his attention to. Maybe this is the most important point of all. Why is it that turning at divine reproof is so incredibly spiritual power, spiritually powerful? So here we go. We come to times of prayer. We come to times of seeking God. We think of how we are going to grow spiritually. And there seem to be two paths. There are the things we are interested in having God do, perhaps very good biblical things, might be healing, blessing, unsaved loved ones. You know the lists, the things that sort of draw our hearts into God. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. Hear me. Listen to me. Help me. There's, there's, there's that approach. Things we set our hearts on, we cry out to God, and we seek to, to get him to respond to our heart's cry. And there's, and there's nothing unbiblical about that. I'm simply saying there's another stream in the Scriptures that, that takes a totally different approach to having God do something really great in your heart. And it's, and it's this, it's, it's finding a set of things that God already has set his attention on. Things about me that I know he is already starting to work at and my prayer will only be a uniting of my will with his. And you can't beat that as a powerful response in prayer. How do I know where God is working in my life? Solomon says, look for areas where he's bringing reproof into your life. Look for areas where he's speaking to you about something on an issue of holiness, growth, sacrifice, maturity, development. Look for areas like that. My temper. My uh, greed. For material things, my covetousness, never having enough, always wanting more. My habit of wasting time instead of redeeming it. My love for worldly pleasures, sports. Now, Solomon says there's a simple way to ensure the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on your life in a way that will deepen and not just vanish, satisfy and not just disappoint, free up and not just end in failure and condemnation. And here's the secret. Give your attention to the same things God is putting his attention on in your heart. And the way you can know you are doing that is by turning immediately when he brings reproof into your life. Here's why success is certain. You certainly don't have the strength to overcome sins and failures of your own heart. But God's reproof in any specific area is, is the visible, telltale sign that he's already anxious to work in that area. That's why the reproof is there. He's chewing at the bit to work in this area of your life. 
And that brings confidence in God's abundant grace and help. This is, this is what's in the Apostle John's mind, what I just described. This is what's in the Apostle John's mind in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So when you turn your own will in the direction, the same direction, lining up with his divine reproof, you know you are setting yourself to work in an area he's already given you token of his presence, his willingness to work. His reproof is the sign that he's already started the work. He's waiting for you to catch up. Four. This kind of spiritual renewal is different from the empty pursuit of mere moral improvement. Atheists want to be better persons. That doesn't bring God into the picture or the pouring out of his spirit. Solomon is so specific in his instruction. You have to be careful to emphasize the right words. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So the turning is a turning to God. It's not just me trying to be a better person. Better husband, better dad, more patient, less dishonest, not watching stuff on the internet I shouldn't watch. No, the turning is a, it's a turning to, to God. It's motivated by a concern for his glory. It's motivated by a hatred of sin, not just the results of sin or the pain of sin. It, it's a turning at divine reproof, especially when nobody else will know if I don't. That's really important. Turning at divine reproof even if no one else will know if I don't. It's, it's just that hunger for divine approval, the aligning of my will with his. Boy, isn't it true? So many of our sins feel pleasing in our warped minds and hearts. The sin may not be at a point where it's brought any pain, it might still be in that initial phase. Sin in its initial phase always brings pleasure. In its final phase, it always brings bondage and pain. But it may still be at the point where it's, it's in terms of anything I feel in my emotions or my peace of mind, it's, it's all up, it's all positive, it's all good. But I turn at God's reproof because I trust God's assessment of my sins rather than my own. I have faith in God's care and concern for my eternal destiny. And in both these ways, I value God more than I treasure my sin. I turn at his reproof. And in so doing, my will is cooperating with where he's already at work. There's tremendous potential for victory there. Five. We're almost done. 
There's something else this verse says. If you turn at my reproof, there's the condition. Behold, look at this. I will pour out my spirit to you. We talked about that. And then this phrase. I will make my words known to you. So point number five. God will reveal his word in deeper ways to those who turn at his reproof. Solomon just spits it out in one phrase. I will make my words known to you. Notice how when, when this is written, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I... Solomon is speaking prophetically here. He's not speaking like Solomon. It, it's God's words coming through him. First person. I will pour out my spirit. Solomon's not talking about his spirit. He's speaking for God here. But, but the process isn't explained. It's just a bare promise. I will make my words known to you. What does that mean? Jesus tells us what that phrase means. It's in Mark chapter 4, 24 and 25. Jesus is the speaker. And he said to them, quote, Pay attention to what you hear. Turn at my reproof, Solomon says. When, when you hear reproof, you, you're, there you are. You're at your devotions. You've got your Bible. You're reading. You know how it goes. You read, 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 and then a sentence, boom. And, and even if you don't want to think about it, you know that something beyond your reading is happening. You weren't looking for it. You weren't planning on it. And... Something, something either makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel your own lack. And you know, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. And there's reproof involved. Okay? Or you're sitting in a service like this. And some bumbling human person like myself, but taking God's word goes over something and there you sit. And, and it's, uh, it's 649 and you weren't planning on it. And all of a sudden, Sunday night, God's talking to you. Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you read. Or you see some other Christian who used to struggle with whatever it is you're struggling with now, and you look at their life and you see the change and the transformation, and just the sight of that person brings conviction into your heart, reproof. Jesus says, now, pay attention to what you hear. Why? With the measure you use... It will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. Do you see it? Turn at my reproof. I will make my words known to you. Jesus says, if you use what you hear, more will be added to you. It's the same thing. Matthew 4.25. For to the one who has, Jesus is still speaking, more will be given. And then these chilling words, and from the one who has not, so you read, you hear, you see, and you do nothing, okay? Well, then what happens? Well, I guess I leave and I just, I don't get what I could have gotten from the Lord. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. That's not what happens. If I come into this place 
God speaks to me here just like he speaks to you, and he speaks to my heart about something. I tune it out, and I walk out this church, and tonight we'll go to Crow's Nest or something and have a hamburger or do something, and, and I just I tune it out. What I'd like to think is, well, there's a blessing there, and I missed it. And Jesus says, that's, Don, that's not at all what happens. When you walk out of this place and you don't hear and you don't respond, it's not just that you don't gain. It's that you will lose whatever spiritual momentum you had before you ever came in here at 6 o'clock. It, it lessens. It lessens. It diminishes. Do you see those words? To the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the one who has not. Has not doesn't mean he doesn't have anything. It means because if he had nothing at all, then you, you can't take anything away, right? When Jesus says the one who has not, he means here's a person who doesn't pay attention. There was, there was that verse from the Bible. There was that thought. There was the Holy Spirit speaking and I didn't pay attention to that. I don't just lose that. I lose everything that was before that. And so, this is a passage about how we sustain and increase what we receive from the Lord. Jesus buries a, a beautiful promise and a painful tragedy. There's that tragedy I just talked about. If at any point I choose to ignore, I don't have to turn at his reproof. I don't have to hear him speak. But if at any point I choose to ignore the transforming truth, if even occasionally I make the choice not to turn at his reproof, not only do I lose the freedom and joy his reproof would have brought into my life at that moment, but I start to lose the benefit of truths I have accumulated in my life over years of listening to God's word. It all starts to leak out of my soul. On the other hand, now this is the point I want to wrap up on. Turn at my reproof, I will make my words known to you. Every time I listen, every time I listen to the correcting voice of the Lord's reproof, and I turn and embrace it, the increase of the life and grace of the Spirit isn't just added one reproof at a time. It, it's like yeast, and it starts to multiply exponentially in my heart. The potential of turning a single time immediately to the reproving voice of the Holy Spirit multiplies everything else about your Christian life that you weren't even thinking about up to that point. That's what Jesus means. 30, 60, 100-fold. What a promise that is. What a promise that is. So, here it is. If you want God to pour out his spirit on your heart, I do. I do. Do seek his face, do call upon his name, do worship, do read the word, do pray. But before you do any of those things, first... Get your heart real still and real humble and find some area where he speaks a word of reproof that stings just a little bit 
and embrace it. And all of a sudden, everything else in every other area of spiritual pursuit will start to grow and brighten and unfold in impact on your soul. And I was thinking about Proverbs, and I just thought all the things we talked about, all the subjects eh, that we've looked at, 16 of them. If whenever God spoke to me about any of those subjects, I just immediately turned and embraced his reproof. potential for transforming, you wouldn't believe what a wonderful person I could be. Turn at his reproof. Turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit upon you, promise number one, and I will make my words known to you. And everyone said, good deal. That's what you're supposed to say. Good deal, that. That. 